it's good to be here. It's always a privilege to be at Life Community. Uh, just absolutely love your church. Have uh, had such a great time every time we've ever been here on a Sunday morning. Uh, loved, uh, had a chance to be with the men at a men's retreat last year. Um, and as Tom said, uh, he and is just a special guy in my life uh, because I feel like he and I are so connected in our hearts. Um, I, I say in all sincerity that you probably have no idea um, the level of honor and respect that that your pastor is due. Um, I am personally a product uh, of his pastoring and shepherding. And my life, I say, uh, with all seriousness, I don't think my life would be uh, available to God um, at whatever level it is if it wasn't for his influence. And that brings my respect for you and the privilege you have of setting under his teaching and his leadership and his guidance. And I know some of you pretty well. We've become pretty good friends over the years. And I know that you enjoy that and, uh, and glean a lot from it. Uh, but it's fun today to, to come and kind of jump in to this Second Corinthians study that you guys have been doing since uh, actually last March, middle of March. I uh, looked that up, listened to a bunch of stuff, loved the series. You know, we live in a culture that is obsessed with worshiping greatness. Without a doubt, we grow up in a culture where greatness is emphasized, adored, honored in pretty much every arena of life, and it impacts all of us. It's kind of interesting to me that Tom and I, in 1995, when we first met and became friends, our common link and we actually talked about this a lot, was that we both had the same disease in 1995. We shared a common disease. And Tom coined it. I'm pretty sure it was you. I don't think it was me. Tom coined it the DFG disease. And that was that we were both convinced in our heart of hearts that we were destined for greatness. <laughs> and we, for years, have talked about the DFG disease and have tried to help each other deal with that. It is not only a disease in us, it's a disease in our society. It really is. I read recently a book by a guy named Jonathan Martin who pastors over in Charlotte, North Carolina called Prototype. I don't know if any of you have heard of this book. I am highly recommending this book. The best book on the life with Jesus that I have read in years. And I don't say that because he's paying me anything, not paying me anything. I don't even know the guy. But an unbelievable book. I'm going to quote a couple of things from him this morning. He says in Prototype, We have always been inclined to worship people or things that we perceive as being great. He says, so we, as a result of that, we exaggerate our own greatness. We inflate our successes. We downplay our weaknesses. And we hide our scars, he says. We exaggerate our own greatness. You know, one of the most real rules guiding our society today is a rule that I don't think is written down in any law book anywhere, but it's probably more impactful than any other law. And that rule is look good no matter what. Look good no matter what. I heard of a guy this week. I was told this a true story. 
Guy goes to have his car fixed at a, at a, at a place where they do, where they do, a mechanic does works on his car. And they find out, well, he just thought it was just going to be a short fix, but they find a pretty serious problem. And it needs to be fixed immediately. And it puts him in a bind because he has no other vehicle. And they say, well, we have loaners. We can give you a loaner. So they go back and they check their stock of loaners. And the guy comes back and says, man, all of our loaners are out except for one loaner. And it is like the ugliest, oldest, beat up looking. Sounds terrible. I mean, it's the hoopty of all hoopties. I mean, it just looks nasty. That's like street lingo. I'm kind of cool if I say stuff like that. So the guy says, well, I got no other choice. I mean, I got place I got to be. And so he, he takes he takes the, the, the beat up loaner. And he starts to drive out of the parking lot. And I mean, smoke's coming out of it. And it's making all kinds of noises. And he pulls up to a stoplight. And literally, he can feel the stairs coming from other people sitting at the light. Looking over at him. Looking at the hoopty. Just, what is this dude? And he mouths. This is, this, is, this is true. He literally mouths to the other people. It's not my car. Doesn't even think about it. Just does it. Any Facebook fans here? It's interesting to me, you know, the whole Facebook phenomenon, obviously, has kind of taken over our society. And it's interesting to me. I have a friend who um, I am friends with him on Facebook, as I am many people. And I came across his Facebook page the other day, and I brought up his personal page. And the picture on his profile was a guy I recognized, but it was from... Years ago, years ago, I mean, and here's the here's the reason I I noticed it, because it was a picture from about 80 pounds ago. I mean, he's trim, he's buff looking. And I was just kind of not that nothing wrong with that. I was just like, wow, I haven't seen that guy for a long time. (laughs) And then I began to notice how, you know, Part of the Facebook thing is like you've got to find the best picture of you anywhere and make that your profile picture. I mean, you've got to like find the one, the one picture that does away with whatever character traits you don't like the most that portrays you in the best possible light. Have you ever have you ever felt this like you're trying to you find one? And it's like magic. Somehow, it, it is me, but it's like the best me that's ever existed. And when I find that, I rarely do find that. I, I'm always looking in pictures. This is the other thing with pictures. You notice that in pictures, if there's a whole bunch of people in the picture, your eye immediately looks for you. Like first, you, what do I, how do I look? What's, do my eyes look like I'm weird? Do I look like I'm stoned? Do I look like something's going wrong with me? Do, do, do they catch me in the middle of a blank? You know what for me it is? Honest truth for me. I have this like double chin thing. And like I, every picture that that shows up, I'm like, what is that turkey neck thing? Oh my goodness. And if I see that in a picture, I don't care what else is going on in the picture. I don't care how great the picture is. I hate the picture hate that picture. But every now and then I'll find one that, that like no double chin, face looks kind of thin, you know, the gray in my mustache looks a little darker than normal, the goatee. I'm thinking that, that looks pretty good. But the problem is there's always somebody's head like right there. You ever done the try your best to crop somebody out of the picture so that you can just get you and not make it look like you had to like cut around their head? 
to get you because we just need to look good. We want to look our very best. I have a good friend who toured for several years with a real successful band here in Columbus. And I had breakfast with him recently, and we were just kind of talking about his life. And I said, you know, what's some things that have been unique since you stepped away from that kind of touring life, you know, with the, the band and stuff? And he was just part of the crew, you know, that did that. And he said, you know, he said, it's real interesting. And, and this is just kind of my paraphrase, a rough paraphrase, but he basically said this. He said, I didn't realize until I left that job how addicted I had become to being associated with popularity and fame and how good it made me look. Just getting off the bus, he said, walking around the venue with that special tag around my neck, being on stage setting up gear, escorting band members during signings and photo opportunities, pulling band members away from the crowd because we had to leave. It all made me, he said, look and feel bigger than I really was. He said it somehow made me feel like I'd arrived. You know, it feels like we're being screamed at all the time by the world around us, saying things like, prove yourself, measure up, be impressive, look good no matter what. I don't know if anybody else here besides me is a fan of the, the a Christmas story that plays uh, 24 straight hours on TBS, uh, you know, right at, at Christmas time. One of my favorite scenes in A Christmas Story is that all these little kids are standing next to this school flagpole in the dead of winter. They're all wrapped up. It's freezing cold outside. And it's the whole question of will a tongue stick to a metal pole when the pole's frozen? And the dialogue goes kind of like this. Flick says, you're full of beans and so's your old man. Schwartz says, oh yeah? Yeah. Who says who? Says me, Flick says. Schwartz says, oh yeah? Yeah. Schwartz says, well, I double dare you. And then the narrator, Ralphie, like the old man, like giving kind of the story. Ralphie says, the exact exchange and nuance of phrase in this ritual is very important. Flick says, huh, are you kidding? Stick my tongue to that stupid pole, that's dumb. Schwartz says, that's because you know it'll stick. You're full of it. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, I double dog dare you. Narrator, now it was serious. (laughs) A double dog dare. What else was left but the triple dare you? And finally, after that, the coup de grace of all dares, the sinister triple dog dare. Schwartz says, I triple dog dare ya. The narrator says, Schwartz had created a slight breach of etiquette by skipping the triple dare and going right for the throat with the triple dog dare. All right, all right. And then he goes and does it. And and I laugh every year when I watch it. Because there's something about being challenged. Something about being pressed. Like, prove it. Like, you're not tough enough. You won't do it. You won't stand up. It's like we get this screamed at us in in subtle and not so subtle ways all the time. And I think we develop kind of a reflexive response to the world screaming at us. We sort of just instinctively, intuitively lead with our best. We show off the exceptional stuff we have if we can find any. 
We make the highlights of our life front and center. We make sure we list all of our degrees and all our credentials as quickly as we possibly can. We make everything sound a little better than it really is. About two weeks ago, I had the joy of attending my wife's uh, 30th high school reunion. Actually, it's coming up in about eight years. Because she's here today. <laughs> Forgot about that, honey, before I decided to go with that. Don't. So anyway, we went to this event her 12th high school reunion a couple weeks ago. And it was very interesting because I, I didn't know any of these people. We grew up in total separate parts of the world. And literally we walk in the door and one of the very first people we meet, my wife says hi to this guy. She introduces me. And within 10 seconds, this guy started telling us not only where he lived, but what company he was had started, how successful his business. I mean, we weren't there 10 seconds. This guy was reading his resume to us. And it sounded great. And I wanted to lie. (laughs) You know, these just become reflexive responses. Just put the best you out there. Just make things. I found an interesting kind of phenomenon going on in our society. No offense to anybody, I hope. (laughs) But I think it's interesting in some ways, how we've changed the terminology of certain job titles over the years. Have you noticed this? What used to be a deli worker is now a sandwich artist, right? I mean, there was Van Gogh, there was Michelangelo, there's Phil the sandwich maker. A coffee person that served coffee used to be a coffee maker, now they're a barista, right? It's just become common terminology. A stewardess on an airplane used to be a stewardess, now flight attendant, a secretary. They they used to be a secretary and that was fine. Now it's executive assistant. A cashier used to be okay to be a cashier. Now they're a retail sales associate. A bank teller used to be okay to be a bank teller. And now they're a funds management specialist. And my favorite of all, and I I have a nephew who, who is doing this and we've had fun with this this summer. It used to be a garbage collector. And my nephew is now a waste management coordinator. (laughs) Coordinating that waste. (laughs) We just want things to look good, no matter what. I had this play out in a very personal way this last week. Earlier this summer, some of the guys who are in this community that we have up in Westerville area, um, some of these young guys in their early mid-20s asked me if I would be a, the coach for a softball team they wanted to put together. They knew I, I used to play softball. I was never personally that good, but I was on some really good teams, knew a lot about it. So, And they knew I hadn't played for years, and they didn't, you know, they, they kind of have this idea that I'm, I used to be a, an athlete. Uh, you know, which is actually true. Don't like that, but it's just true. So they said, would you, you know, would you coach a softball? And I'm like, sure, you know, that, that'd be fine. And, and it wasn't until like we started actually playing games that I realized like only two of these guys had ever played softball in their life. And I think I only had maybe three or four who ever played catch with anybody. <laughs> I mean, it was like bad news bears times a thousand. And somehow we got in this league that was supposed to be the lowest level league in Westerville, but they didn't have enough teams for that league, so they combined it with the next level up. So we're playing A-league teams. And we have gone through our whole season. We have not, not only have we not won a game, I mean, that would be something, 
to say you hadn't won a game. We have not even finished a complete game. (laughs) They have the mercy rule. If you're behind 20 runs at the end of four innings, the game's over. 12 runs at the end of five innings, the game's over. If it's within 12, we'll play the sixth inning. We have never played a sixth inning. Matter of fact, we got to the point by about the third game where our goal was to play a fifth inning. It was just terrible. I mean, it was horrible. But here's what happened. So, like, we made the playoffs. Who knew? Right? They couldn't keep us out because we were just so compelling of a story. And so this last week was the playoff game. And our pitcher, the only pitcher we have on our team, the only guy who can pitch, has to be out of town. We don't have enough players and we don't have a pitcher. We could have just had mercy on the league and just not shown up, right? But they came to me and they said, Phil, would you pitch? Like it's our last chance. And I'm like, okay. So I go this past Thursday night and I pitch. And we lose 32 to 3. It only went three and a half innings because we were the visitors. They didn't even have to bat in the, they didn't even have to bat in the fourth inning. They batted three innings and scored 32 runs. And I was pitching. ERA off the charts. Right? But here's what was interesting. Woo! What was interesting? The guy who runs the league was there. He's actually a friend of mine. Used to work with him. The umpire for our game was a guy I used to do some work with. Without even strategically deciding, I found myself having conversations with these guys during the game, pulling them over on the side, trying to let them know I'm trying to help these guys out. This is not really my team. Why? Why was I so compelled to make sure they knew? Because look good no matter what is in my DNA. It's in my gut. And it's not just a reality in our modern world. First century Roman culture had a very important Latin word in their day for this exact kind of idea. It was called dignitas. Dignitas, from which we get our word dignity, but it's actually, it actually means a lot more than what I think our concept of dignity has come to mean. Dignitas in first century Roman culture, the Latin word dignitas, meant the total sum of the pieces of a person's life that add up to their value, their reputation, their esteem, and their overall worth in a society. In that culture, which is very much a shame and honor culture, which I would say ours is as well, In that culture, dignitas was what you brought to the table that deserved honor. And as a society, you lived off of all the equity you could muster in the dignitas file. And Jesus steps into such culture. And Jesus, if ever there should have been one, who was able to build dignitas. Jesus came with a whole different angle. It was almost like Jesus didn't even really care much 
about dignitas. See, Jesus didn't earn or build dignitas even through a, a, a resume of his actions. He didn't, he didn't build dignitas even through powerful miracles that he performed. He didn't try to build dignitas even through trying to teach people in the most incredible, astounding, amazing authority ever. You see, Jesus may be the first and only true human being lived from a dignitas that was inherently his as a son of a heavenly father. And he knew in his heart, probably portrayed more at his baptism than anywhere else where he humbles himself and is baptized without he who is without sin, still submitted to baptism. But John the Baptist baptized him and the voice of the father comes from heaven and says, this is my son and he's loved. And with him, I am well pleased. And Jesus lived off of the value that he knew he had in the heart of his father. And dignitas for Jesus was just his. It was never something he had to, to, to create. Never something he tried to build. His value was rooted in his love relationship with his heavenly father. And he did not need to make sure he looked good. It's part of why Jesus is so compelling. It's part of why I am so fascinated with him and continue to deepen a love for him because he models a man who knows at his core who he is and what he does not have to prove. Jesus steps into that world with just this whole different dignitas. And in Jesus's way of living, humility and vulnerability and honesty and even Things like weakness and suffering and hardship and difficulty and scars and disappointments. These things become embraced and treasured as a significant part of an effective, abundant life. Again, Jonathan Martin in Prototype says this. Human history is largely the story of people who say, my God can beat up your God. My king can beat up your king. My army is more awesome than your army. My dad can beat up your dad. I added that. He didn't say that, but I remember saying that. And then attempt to prove the point to each other, all in the name of greatness. Jonathan Martin goes on to say, in ancient cultures, people often tried to appeal to the extraordinary power and dominance of their gods as a reason for worship. Pharaohs and Caesars and emperors and even many in our, of our contemporary celebrities are humans whose feats of power and achievement make people worship them as virtual gods. So what do we make of a God who is worshipped not for his might, but for his weakness, for even his wounds? The path to human power and influence, Martin says, then and now has always required that we conceal our scars, cover our wounds and overcome the power of violence with greater violence. Yet the strange story of how Jesus became king inverts that entire order by revealing his scars, exposing his wounds, overcoming the power of violence by allowing the violent to overcome him. In Jesus, I would say. Struggling produces patience. Brokenness produces healing. Disappointment produces hope. Scars produce redeemed beauty. And death produces resurrections. Take my life and form it. Take my mind, transform it. Take my will, conform it. There is no other way than to take the real me 
at my core, brokenness and all to Jesus. So you've been walking through 2 Corinthians since mid-March. And 2 Corinthians, as those of you know who've been a part of this series at all, is written by a guy named Paul. And Paul was a great leader in the early church and had helped this church form in Corinth. He was the one who started it, who brought believers to Jesus, who helped them grow and nurture, who helped them set up leadership, who helped them determine how to function as a body. And all throughout this letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul has been challenged to step up and prove himself, as Tom and other of your speakers have talked about. Paul's been called out, so to speak, to show who he really is and what he's capable of. These super apostles, as they're called in 2 Corinthians, have come in with flashy recommendations and great talent and superb charisma, and they've created a buzz around their leadership, and they also have created a lot of questions about this guy named Paul and about his leadership and the Corinthian people themselves, as if those challenges weren't enough. I think if you read closely through 2 Corinthians, you see on Paul's heart, the hardest piece of all is that the Corinthian people, who he's given blood, sweat, and tears for, who he's loved and sacrificed for, they're questioning him. They're questioning his credibility. They're questioning his honesty. I think they're asking questions like this, which you see all throughout the letter, 2 Corinthians. Was Paul really sincere and honest with us? Can Paul really even be trusted? It seems like sometimes he doesn't tell us the whole truth. Paul's speaking ability, it's really really not that compelling or exciting. It's actually kind of boring. Paul's fundraising tactics. I mean, there's a little question there about whether those things are legit. Paul's claims to have real authority and be an apostle of Jesus. I mean, the more we think about it, the more his credentials just look a little flaky, honestly. I mean, he was a nice guy. He helped us out. He got things started. But, I mean, it's a new day. I mean, Paul writes letters like he's some kind of tough, powerful dude, and then he shows up and in person he comes off as some lightweight, kind of wimpy, kind of like a wuss. Can you use the word wuss here? Okay. You know, Paul's actually, I think Tom mentioned this in a letter recently, or in a message recently, Paul's actually kind of short, kind of ugly, bow-legged, unibrow. Not much to look at. Not a very impressive leader. And to top it all off, Paul secretly attended Michigan for a couple of semesters. (laughs) He wears go blue underwear under his robe. Nobody knows. (laughs) But it's like all these things kind of being thrown at who Paul is. In 2 Corinthians, you know, for me, honestly, this is honest to goodness truth. And this kind of, I kind of quaked a little bit when Tom told me this is what we were doing this summer. Because 2 Corinthians, I've kind of had this like love-hate thing with 2 Corinthians. I mean, there is some majestic stuff in 2 Corinthians. I mean, incredible verses to memorize. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new is gone. Man, Holy Spirit power in that. Or our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So if we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Oh, yeah. Oh. Such good stuff. God himself made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, yeah, Paul. Good stuff in 2 Corinthians. 
But then there's this other stuff in 2 Corinthians. This stuff that kind of weirds me out a little bit. Like, Paul seems to kind of be bragging some places. Kind of like one-upping people. Kind of like getting his little feelings hurt. Kind of being like full of himself. Like, this is really me. Like, I need to just like tell you guys how it is. And that just kind of weirds me out. Like, what is going on? I mean, in certain places in 2 Corinthians, it, it kind of feels like Paul has a little bit of a Napoleon complex or something. Like short man syndrome. Like he's just ready to fight people because they don't like him. And it used to make me real uncomfortable. But you know, the older I get, the more I begin to realize that Paul is just real. And like, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but tons of scripture are inspired by the Holy Spirit that show our humanity. Our struggles, our difficulties. And I do think in 2 Corinthians, and I think Tom has referred to this some, but I think in 2 Corinthians you get a guy who is hurt, who's disappointed, who's frustrated, a little bit angry. And I can relate. Did you turn your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 11? Last week, uh, Tom walked you through the first part of chapter 11, I think really up to verse 21, but I'm going to overlap just a few verses because I just think it draws out what the emphasis needs to be this morning. Let's begin uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 with verse 16. And here he's really responding to like these challenges, these like things that are being like thrown right in his face. He's He's being... I mean, he's just right in it. Like he's been, he's had the smack down thrown on him and he's just coming back. He says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if I, if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool so that I may do a little boasting. And then he says in verse 17, one of the wildest verses in anywhere in the Bible. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, he says, but as a fool. Wow. All right, Paul. Since many are boasting in the way that the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. And in fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes you towards, pushes himself towards you or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. A little sarcasm here, maybe. A little emotion. What anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, he says. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this, he says. I am more. I have more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. That means close to getting killed. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And he doesn't mean like on the stuff. He means like for real with real rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in. And then he just goes on a rant here. This is just like a rant. Okay. First century slam poetry rant right here. He says, I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger, in danger in the country, in danger at sea. And in danger from false brothers. Friends, no matter how you unpack this or exegete this, there is so much 
emotion going on here. He hurts. And he's frustrated. Part of me thinks that maybe, and maybe it's just me, but I kind of hear a softening starting with verse 27. It's just kind of my sense. But he says, after that kind of rant, mm, you probably, you know, I just, I kind of hear a pause there. I can see Paul maybe just putting the pen down, looking around the room, looking up. And then he says in verse 27, comes back, picks the pen up. I've labored and toiled. I've gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern, my heart, for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. You know, I really think that Paul, in just this section, is having this like overwhelming sense of hurt and this desire to just prove himself for just a little bit. Just bring the goods, man. Like, you don't think I'm powerful? Let me show you some oomph. But then I think there's also a place in this section where the Holy Spirit probably grabs him and he says, oh man, I got to be careful about going down that road. Yeah, I told you I was, you know, this is going to be from me, not from God, but man, I can't get too caught up in this. And then he gives us those 27 to 29 and then he comes to, to verse 30 and he says, man, if I must boast, And I think that means not like brag. I mean, it may mean that a little bit, but I really think to boast means to bring out into the open, to put it front and center, to shine a spotlight on it, to lead with this. If I'm going to lead with something about me, this is what it needs to be. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. This is where Paul decides that I just need to lean into the truth about me. Not just the good stuff. Not just how hard I've worked. Not just how tough it's been. But actually my weakness. My frailty. I need to choose vulnerability and honesty. I need to step into brokenness and weakness and struggle. I need to push away the temptation to look good no matter what. It's like he's being challenged about being weak and he starts here to really prove that he's not and then he's like, he stops. And he says, oh. You know, every single leader deals with this temptation. Including spiritual leaders. Including pastors. And staff members. It's the temptation that says, don't let them see your weakness. Don't let them think you don't know what we're supposed to do next. Don't let them think you're discouraged. Don't let them think you're run down or burned out. Don't let them think that you have anxieties and depression or darkness in your, in your sleepless nights. Don't let them see 
the real you. And we even like couch this in church world with stuff like they need to, they need to be encouraged. They need to be lifted up. They need to have a leader that knows what the score is. They need somebody to get them out of the wilderness. In early 2009, after 19 years of pastoring a church that we had planted here in Columbus, we entered a season of real financial hardship, struggle, and difficulty, and the most crisis point we had ever come to. And that just happened to coincide with a time when I was at a bad place. I was hurting. I was empty. I was burned out. I was discouraged. And I was trying my best to navigate through that time. And I'll never forget, after one leadership team meeting we had, a guy pulled me aside, and I know this guy well, and he meant well. He did not know what this did to me. He did not understand. But he pulled me aside and he said, Phil, if ever you are really going to lead, like, I mean, like chart a path, and like take the bullets, and like, get us out of this. Like, it's got to be now. And I didn't chart a path very well. And I didn't get us out of it very well. And by June of that year, I had turned in my resignation and I was no longer there. The temptation as a leader to just have it together is huge. It's huge. And I think it was huge for Paul. And then it's like Paul just steps back and he says, wait, 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 wait. I've tried to tell him all throughout this letter that it's not about how great we are. I mean, remember back to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7? It was a long time ago. I don't know if you remember Tom teaching on it. I listened to it this week, so it's like fresh in my mind. But Paul hits this like pinnacle point in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. And he says, we have this treasure. The treasure being the love and the grace of God offered to us. The forgiveness and acceptance of God into his family. The dignitas of God. We have this treasure, but we have it in jars of clay. Remember that? Crack pots. Like fragile vessels. Like we have what God gives us, but we have it in this container that is just weak and frail and broken. And at verse 30, he comes back to it again. He says, if I'm going to boast, I got to boast in the fact that I'm a cracked pot. And friends, I'm a cracked pot. And Tom's a cracked pot. We call him cracked pot a lot. We're just fragile vessels. So Paul says, if I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. And then look back at the text. And then, like if that's not enough, and I think this is where it really turns. He says in verse 31, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. And then he says this. And this is, I think, his decision to lead with his weakness. He says, in Damascus, the governor under King Artius, Had the city of Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from the window and the wall and slipped through his hands. I've always read that my whole life and went, yeah, Paul, way to go, man. Got out of there. Very cool. That's not the context of what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is I had a mission 
to a city and it did not work. I failed. I blew it. I think to Paul, and I won't even go into the circumstances and I don't even think we can know them, but I think what Paul is trying to say is, in this decision right now, I am going to tell you not about my strengths, not about all the stuff that's going to make me look good, not about all the victories that I've won. I'm going to tell you about my failures. I'm going to tell you about the times that I blew it. That it did not work. Next week, Tom's going to pick up at the beginning of verse 12, but he gave me permission to jump ahead just a little bit. Look at verse 7 in chapter 12. Paul's still on this same theme. Like, what am I going to lead with? What am I going to bring front and center? What am I going to, what's, what am I going to make significant as I try to influence these people? And he says this in verse 7, to keep me from con- becoming conceited. Verses many of you know well. Because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh. And everybody wants to know what that was. Everybody always wants to know what that was. We all want to know what that was. I want to know what that was. I'm, when he gives a seminar in heaven someday about when it's titled Thorn in the Flesh 1, and like it's going to be revealed. He's going to tell, man, we're all there. Like, right? Like, this is like something we like really want to know. But he doesn't tell us right here. Some people think that's because the Corinthians know exactly what it is. <laughs> he doesn't have to say it. Some people say that he doesn't tell because the thing itself is not important. I actually think that's the deal, personally. Because we all have one. We all have a thorn in the flesh. Some of us, it's other people. We have people who are thorns in our flesh. Maybe that's what Paul's talking about. Those super apostles, thorn in my flesh. Everywhere I go, sticking me right in the side. Maybe we have people, maybe you have people like that in your own life. Maybe that's your boss. Maybe that's a teacher. Maybe that's somebody you have to see every day. Some people think the thorn in the flesh is actually a physical deformity, a problem that he has. Maybe it is. Some people say it was his blindness, his bad eyes. Maybe it is. Maybe he was really short. Maybe he really was ugly. Maybe it was his unibrow. I don't know. Could be any of those. I don't know. Maybe it was an emotional struggle of some kind. Maybe it was. But I do know that what he says, it's interesting. What he says right after the thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan... And I don't think he's attributing credit to Satan there necessarily. I think he's just saying this is like something Satan continually uses in my life. Like he, he, he uses this against me. And then he says this, to torment me. And when I read that, I went, oh, yeah. I mean, like the thorns in my life, I mean, it just, it just feels like torment. Just such a powerful phrase. And then he says this, get this. Man, this is so powerful. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Me, Paul. Corinthians, remember me? Remember me, Paul, that do, do, does miracles? Remember people getting healed? Remember me, Paul, having the Holy Spirit flow through me to do amazing things? Remember the amazing stuff? Well, I asked God to do something for me like that. Do one of those miracles for me. I've seen it. I've touched it. I've been a part of it. I've been the avenue that it's flowed through. It has been a part of my life. And I've seen so many lives change. God, just this one time, could you take this away from me? And Paul says, not just once, three times. Like me and God had a three-timer. Like, seriously, God? Like, you're not going to take it away? For real? All right, I'm coming back tomorrow, 10 o'clock. Be right here, me and you. We're having it out. Three times this happens. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. 
to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is some amazing, amazing, powerful, crazy verses where God says, Paul, I got something better for you than taking it away. And the better thing I have for you is grace. Friends, I'm kind of convinced at this point in my life, I'm coming up on 30 years of doing ministry, working with people, mostly with men, a lot of one-on-one settings for all these 30 years. And in my own life and in the work I've done with guys, I'm kind of convinced that there's like three different ways that we deal with our weaknesses, our brokenness, our frailty. Some of us stand above it. We push it under our feet and we act like it's not really there. We act like it's not a part of our life. It doesn't bother me. It's the kind of stuff, oh, it's, it's all, I'm all good. It's all good. It's all good. People come to you, man, you know, man, I'm really sorry. No, 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 I'm not offended. It's okay. It's all good. You can't, you can't hurt me. I'm all good. I got it. I got this. Not bothered by that. Not bothered by that stuff. Other people, too weak. Not me. I got it. Handle it. Under control. That's what some of us do. A lot of us do. A lot of us do even an interesting thing while we're standing on our weakness. We might even get honest about some of it. I tell some people some stuff about me that I struggle with. I feel a lot better. I tell them some more stuff I struggle with. I feel a lot better. I might get up to 70, 80% of stuff I struggle with. But that last 10, 20%, man, that last stuff. I got that. It's all right. Talk to God about it. Me and God. It's okay. Say it's all right. I don't need to like. It's all, I'm good. All good. That's what some of us do. Some of us, however, crawl under our weakness. Our weakness just starts to dominate us. It kind of defines everything about our life. Everything we can see. It pretty much debilitates us. Like, there's not a lot of movement under here. <laughs> Whew. Like, man, about making the best I can out of it, but this sucks. And we kind of go into this stuff like, man, I am such a jerk. Man, I never catch a break. If it could happen bad, it happens to me. Job, he's my favorite dude in the Bible, man, me and Job. Got me and Job walking together. I live like Job. And we're always frustrated. We always get our feelings hurt. Man, they never asked me to do anything over at that church. I know I could, I could get up there. I could play that guitar. They never asked me to do that. I don't even know if I want to go back over there anymore. They, they didn't say hi to me. When I was standing there, I stood at the coffee can. I drank four cups of coffee. I only had two people. <laughs> only two people said hi to me. What's wrong with those people? See, we just live under there. Becomes our life. I think those two extremes are what are pretty normal. We tend towards one or the other. But I think Jesus 
And what Paul is talking about right here offers us something different. I think he offers us a different way. Look back at your text one more time. Verse 9. God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's almost like there's something with our weakness, with our frailty, that God really wants to do. So Paul says, I will boast gladly. He says, I will boast all the more gladly. I hear that as being like a humility. I will own my weakness and struggle. The first two options really are extremes and neither one of them actually owns it. One of them says, I got it. I stomp on it. I conquer it. I'm done with it. The other says, it owns me. Paul says, I just, it's okay. I have it. I'll boast. I'll lead with it. I'll bring it out. I just see a humility, a true humility, accepting the reality. I see a contentment. He says, I actually delight in. He says the first part of verse 10. I delight in these weaknesses. I don't think that means that he's jumping up and down. Not like, yay me, I got a thorn in the flesh. I don't think that's that delight. I think it's a, you know what? I have a settled peace that my life is God's with this reality. I think there's a contentment in that. And then he says at the end, he says, he says, for when I am weak, look at the very end of verse of verse 10, when I am weak, then I am strong. It's an empowerment from God. The source, he's, I would think, he, and, and Tom has done an excellent job making this really clear. The source of the strength is not my own flesh. It is not about my flesh. It is not about the impact I can make, how I can conquer stuff, how fruitful my life can be. It is literally not about my power. It is about God's power in me. And I think that's really the third option. I think the third option is I can take my weakness, my frailty, my brokenness, my failure, my struggle, my thorn. And I can pick it up with God's help and we can carry it. I can just have it with me. And it reminds me all the time how much I need the grace and power and strength of God. Old DC Talk song. I don't know if anybody here even knows who DC Talk is. Maybe you do. Some of you guys are old like me, so maybe you do. Old DC Talk tone. This only serves to confirm my suspicion that I'm still a man in need of a Savior. This reminds me every day I need a Savior. And so I carry it with God's strength and His grace begins to flow. Tom used this phrase a few weeks back. He said, against the right kind of backdrop, the grace of God pops, pops out. When he was telling that, I had this picture of like in a jewelry store, they take like black velvet, they lay it down when you're coming in to like get married and find a wedding ring for your, or an engagement ring, and they lay the diamonds on the black velvet, and then they turn the lights on. Boom, boom, boom. Like this little tiny minuscule. You have to get a microscope to look at it like diamond for real under those lights. Background. Boom. It's like bright and shiny. And yeah, I'll buy that one. Okay. You know, that's that's the idea that God's against the backdrop of my frailty. God's grace can pop and shine. And you know, what? it's the amazing thing that God does as I carry this with me. I, I can just, you know. Along the way, I find, man, 
here's a guy that knows what frailty is. Like, let me tell you about mine. Let me tell you where I'm at. And Luke's a good friend of mine, so I knew he'd be okay with me saying that. But it becomes the avenue. It becomes the platform. It becomes the thing through which God's grace is offered to other people. It becomes fruitful. It becomes a fruitful part of my life. Friends, you know what the crazy question, though, really is? The crazy question is, what is your weakness? Because we love sitting in church and hearing people talk about stuff and the theory of power and weakness. We love the theory, the theology, the verses. We love the idea. Somehow it makes us feel better. Yes, I agree with that. And then we walk out and it was cool. We loved it. But it doesn't become real life for us. It just becomes a theory. And real life isn't a theory. Real life is real. And friends, when you pick up that weakness, frailty, brokenness, when you stop stuffing it underneath your feet, and when you stop living underneath it, and you say by the grace and power of God, together we are going to go forward together. When you do that, here's some things that I guarantee are going to happen for you. You're going to get real uncomfortable. Things get real awkward. Conflict and tension and pain. You feel threatened often. It feels dangerous to be in a culture where everybody says, look good no matter what. Yeah, I don't know how this fits in my profile picture on Facebook. Like, you know what I mean? I don't know. Like, it just, it's tough to make it work. But what is yours? Serious question. What's your deepest weakness? Scar? Failure? Struggle? Thorn? I don't mean like the first 80%. I mean like the last 20%. The last 10%. The last 1%. Here's where I think you would pretty much find the genuine answer to that question. If you don't know. It's most likely tied up in whatever you would be most embarrassed to have known or seen by other people. Whatever holds your deepest shame. It might be a character trait. For me, defensiveness, insecurity, being threatened by other people's talents and skills, and appearance. Maybe it's a habit or an addiction. Maybe it's something that you've just embraced and it's just become a regular part of your life. I understand habits and addictions. I've, and I do walk with anger, pornography, a craving for grandiosity. I'm addicted to managing my image in front of other people. I'm doing it this morning right here. Maybe it's a horrific, ugly decision you made somewhere in the past. Something you participated in. Something you were a part of. Maybe it's a core failure or loss. Or a time that you fell flat on your face in some kind of royal way. And it just reflects so horribly on you. 
You know, when we lean into our weakness and bring it into the open and choose to stop hiding it and surrender our strategy for dealing with it to Jesus, like life actually begins to change. All that stuff we sang about this morning, wanting from God, holiness, righteousness, goodness, brokenness. There is no way to that other than through owning our weakness. There was no path to resurrection other than the cross. You know, I used to think, thank goodness, Jesus went to the cross. That means he took all the pain. We don't got to deal with any pain. Like we just get resurrection, glorious victory life. And some churches will just tell you that, man. It's just yours. Like own it. Come on Sunday morning, get fired up. It'll last you all week. Come back again, fire up again next Sunday. Well, that'll be your life. Friends, that has not been my life. My life has been more like what Jesus said when he said, Phil, unless you take up your cross daily. Like unless you own the pain. Unless you work with me in confession and openness and honesty about the struggle. Unless there is no resurrection in you. And friends, I want the resurrection. Paul said it elsewhere, I think in Philippians. He said, I want the power that Jesus gives, but he also said, I want the fellowship of the sufferings. Wow. So crazy. So what should we do? I mean, how should we respond? Well, if you're one of these people over here, and I mean, you're standing on your weakness and your frailty. Friends, there is no magic formula. You've got to come clean. I mean, seriously, you've got to get honest with God. And then you've got to do what James said. James said, like, confess one to another so that you can be healed. He said, I thought God did the healing. Well, yeah, he does. But James was smart enough to know, like, if you'll tell God, but you won't tell anybody else, you ain't really coming clean. Like, you need to tell God, but you need to come clean. And friends, that just gets all kinds of crazy. It gets all kinds of hairy. It gets all kinds of messy. It gets all kinds of painful, embarrassing, and hard. Maybe you're over here and you're laying underneath this thing. And this thing is defining you. It is all about who you are and you're debilitated. Friends, maybe at that place is the place you need to recognize your weakness and say, I am not my weakness. I am not my failure. I am loved by God. And your steps may be different. They may be unique. Maybe you do need help. Maybe you need counseling. Maybe you need a community. Maybe you need to actually look fear in the face and offer to serve someone. Whatever step you need to take, God's promise is that my grace is sufficient for your weakness. Would you bow your heads with me?